welcome to episode four of the God Learners, a podcast about gaming and reading in the mythical world of Glorantha. I am Jörg. And I'm Ludo, aka Lord Abdul. And uh, with us today, we have not one, not two, but three guests. Uh, and yeah. uh, they are collectively known as Beer with Teeth. Um, okay, let's go and um, ask you all to introduce yourselves. Let's start with the one closest to me geographically. That would be me then. Uh, my name's Erin. Uh, I play a PC called Veranus, and so I'm often referred to as Veranus by my co-authors. Um, and I'm in British Columbia, so I've, I've been doing this for a short time, a few years now. Okay, next, uh, let's go to the to the dude. Um, my name's Dom. Uh, I, I play a PC, well, one PC called Rager and another one called Fenric, but I'm often called Rager by the Beer with Teeth crowd because uh, that's how many of them first knew me. Uh, I've been playing, hmm, I've been GMing RingQuest since the late 80s, playing entirely new experience to me. I only started playing with RingQuest Glorantha coming out and played for the first time, oh gosh, it must be what, three years ago now um, in Glorantha. Um, and then spinning off the various campaigns that became, became Beer with Teeth and Writing. And so uh, last is the mighty and uh, dangerous GM. Are you, are you the game master? It varies because we have several games and we play in different games. Okay. So the original game master is Tom, and this is all his fault. And one day we will hunt him down and let him know that. It is totally his fault. It, Tom, I know you're listening. It's your fault. <laughs> and I'm behind you. Uh, but who are you? My name's Diana. I'm also known as Berra among the crew. I'm an artist and an engineer, and I work for the University of Cambridge. Uh, my boss has met me, and I haven't been fired yet, and I cannot explain that. <laughs> and as part of Beer with Teeth, I do some of the writing, some of the art, um, most of the project management, because I have most of the free time, and some of the editing. Cool. Uh, and so why are you all called Beer with Teeth? It's the name of my characters, Perry, because they come from a place with a lot of pear trees because they work on muddy clay. And we introduced this to Rajar and he said, this is awesome. It's like beer with teeth. <laughs> and then we needed a name to write under and we went, you know, Rajar, what should we do? Beryl, what should we do? And, and, and from there, we came from the, the logo that you see, which is a big beer glass and a small beer glass, which is reflected by the fact that my character, Rajar, is a massive storm ball and, and Berra is a tiny humacti and they, they are sort of an Asterix and Obelix type pair um, with, with the rest of the party trying not to get dragged in their wake um, to almost certain doom. Um, although Varanis seems to head us into almost certain doom on a very regular basis. I've got I'd to argue say. with that, but I'd be lying. Yeah. Um, and, but that's uh, where Beer with Teeth came from. It came from an in-character conversation about very strong pear alcohol, basically. Cool. And so, uh, what kind of uh, what kind of stuff are you playing right now? Mm. I'm loyal to the point of obsession. When I find one thing I like, I tend to do it really a lot. 
So currently for me, it's just running and playing RuneQuest Garantha. And I will do that for some time. Occasionally people say something like, oh, Rivers of London or oh, Pendragon. And I go, no, really, you don't understand. (laughs) I'm playing in a game that um, Dom is GMing. We're we're playing a Cthulhu game, and and it's kind of interesting because somehow I'm the archaeologist of the party, and that's my modern job. So, not quite sure how I got talked into that, but here I am. Yeah, escapism. You know, that's escapism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I am currently. This is quite a long list. I'm currently playing uh, RuneQuest in Tom's game. Uh, I am currently playing RuneQuest in Bera's game. I am running Cthulhu for Erin and Chris and Tom, the original GM, and my wife. Um, and I am running a BRP-based Rivers of London adjacent game for an entirely different crowd of people on another night. So <laughs> I am playing in GM and I'm also playing in a Witcher tabletop roleplay game with another GM of another entirely set, different set of people. So I'm playing a lot of games at the moment. Not every week, I've got to say, but most of them are fortnightly. Most of them are once every two weeks. Hey, nice. I would like to have free time like that. Uh, so do I. I don't anymore. If, if you had free time like that, you wouldn't have free time anymore. And there's the problem. True. Yeah. True. And so, what uh, what are you uh, playing in terms of Gloranta? Are you playing like sixteen twenty five, like new timeline, new new stuff? Uh, are you playing some of the published stuff, or just all your own stuff? The Barris game is uh, a 1615 start. We're now in about, what, 1617, something like that? Well, we started in, I think, 1611. Okay. And we've been going for a while, but it's about 1617 now, and we're going to end up floating down the river of cradles. Everyone Uh, knows we're working up to that out of character. Which I've never played, even though I've I've been a GM in in all this classic period. And I now finally, for the first time in my... Glorantha role-playing career, have a rune lord level, well, shaman, um, character who's going to go into River of Cradles. So I'm really looking forward to it, assuming I don't die of something stupid first, which is entirely <laughs> likely. Um, so that's a really interesting thing. The Sunday game is the new timeline. We started in 1625, but that was several years ago now. So we are now moving on through time. We've gone past the Battle of Queens and we're into new territory. In, in our game, Starbrow is still alive and did not die. So um, things are going on that way. Did the players save her or protect her or did you actually just change the timeline? Because Uh, No, the the players saved her uh, or rather the players brought her back after (laughs) she had died. (laughs) And just after Black Sphere had set fire to her pyre. So um, there's all kinds of politics going on because we are members or some of us are members of the Kolimar tribe and we're kind of stuck in between two very powerful, quite angry women, and Argraf. Um, so it's, there's a, it's quite an interesting situation to be in game-wise. Um, the game I was running, which is now on hiatus, was a spin-off of Tom's game, which because we just got too many players and we split off. I put that game on hiatus um, once the players had all settled down around Apple Lane and become fan of Apple Lane and all the rest of it. I may come back to it, but I've been running uh, Witcher and then Cthulhu for a while, just as a break, 
if any, I'll be honest, I'm waiting for the Sartar campaign to come out. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of want to run that. And yeah, that's what I, I wanted to know. Like, do you, do you find you have to slow down time? Otherwise, like adventuring goes too fast and you're like in 1640? Or... We have a massive problem with this, yeah. where Tom runs really quite slow, intricate stuff. And I started off running a game. I thought, you know, 1625, plenty of time. I'll be able to do this. Unfortunately, about three months later, we'd reached the end of his timeline, which is really awkward. So then I was already running a game set in the same timeline, which is the, the game that Rajar is in occasionally. We go back and trying to keep those two together was not enough. So I took my 1627 players and went, you know what, let's find out how your previous sets of people happen, you know, how, you, how your previous history happened. And so I started something in 1597 as well. And I'm trying to keep it in all the same world. It may be that I'm wrong and that the player characters do things that change stuff. One of the things I'd note is that while we do uh, play some of the published stuff, all of we we have this kind of team of GMs and they're all very good at making stuff up. And so uh, we're never bound by the published stuff in and this is part of why Tom's game is taking years. I mean, it sometimes feels like we're playing real time in Tom's game because it's 1627. It started actually it's longer than real time now because um, we started they started, I joined a little bit late. They started in 1625 and it's only 1627 and it's been two and a half years since you guys started, I think two years since I did. So yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of making stuff up along the way, which is great fun. Which, which is great fun, but that, that's kind of why I put my game on pause. I didn't want to get ahead of Tom with the other characters and write his prehistory for you know write the history for him um so i put my game and, and it kind of come to a natural pause point so i sort of stepped off i had no problem going over the official timelines and changing things and doing stuff like that but when you're playing in multiple games in multiple in a shared universe with codependent it was just like it got i don't want to i don't want to second guess what what um tom's going to do tom hasn't written a huge plot arc I love what he's doing. I'll just step off and I'll run Cthulhu for a little while and, or I'll run Richard for a little while and, and then we'll come back to it later. And that's, that's how I kind of dealt with it because I'm not as brave as Diana to, to try and weave three or four different game, game plot lines into one. And it was just like, you know what? I'm just going to step off for a while because it's giving me a headache and run something else for a while. I do often use published adventures but they're not always necessarily in the context in which they're published. So I'm having a lot of fun going back to the Gloranthan classics, which I'd never read. I started two and a half years ago. And I'm playing those through with the 1613-ish group. But then anything that comes out that I like, either that's official or from the Johnstown Compendium, I do have the option of playing it either in modern times or a long time ago. So you may find that I do either of those two things. My big problem is having to liaise with Tom to make sure we don't play the same thing twice, <laughs> 10 or 20 years apart. Yeah. I, I started um, getting to know Glorantha about the same time as you, Diana, actually. Uh, but before that, I was, uh, and I still is, uh, a giant Call of Cthulhu fan. So I'm kind of used to 
both adapting published adventures into different time periods and different places and stuff like that. And, um, and I'm also uh, used to playing slower than real time. Like I think we ran Masks of Nyarlathotep, which I think in, in the game it spanned maybe 10 months or a year. But in the real world, I think we took two years and a half to play it or something. So, yeah. Well, that, that's not a huge amount for Masks because Masks is huge. I've never run Masks, but I have run um, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, Spawn of Azoth, Horror and the Orient Express. I'm currently running Children of Fear for Erin and Tom and a bunch of other people, which is top. It's really, really good. Shout out to, to Lynn if she's listening. Um, and so, yeah, that's I, I'm quite used to doing that sort of thing. Um, and the other thing that we do, which I think is worth mentioning, is in, especially in the main game, um, if I can call it that, which is Tom's uh, GM game, is that we do the Ars Magica trick of guest spot GMing. So sometimes Tom will put his hand up and go, I've got no plot for next week. Can somebody else run something? Or uh, let's give Tom a break and he'll play one of his characters. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we'll have guest spots. And that's where that's where some of our adventures have come from. And there'll often be a spot where me or Diana or some of our other players will just step in and run something at random. And um, that's where uh, some of our scenarios have come from. Taylor Woodcraft came from exactly that. Tom just put his hand up and said, I can't run it. I drew a deck of um, gaming tarot cards that some friends of mine over at Trinity Games make. And I just drew three three plot cards and made it up on, on the spur. And um, that's where Taylor Woodcraft came from. Uh, although there was no mud wrestling, Erin, in the published versions. The mud wrestling was so much fun, but the best was the box and it was my box and they took it from me and destroyed it. But the cool kind of thing about that was it, it was a session that we played. I think we pulled that off in one session yeah. and then uh, elements of it kept coming up again and again over um, months of play. Um, yeah. so it became, it's how these little things, sometimes a one-off, uh, scenario can then become part of the sort of overarching story. And I thought that was really cool too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's just one small thing to add there. Yeah. The book, the Pegasus Plateau has a scenario in Crimson Petals and we wrote that deliberately to give Tom a rest from GMing. So that was the start of it. Well, we'll uh, talk a bit more about how you write your stuff uh, in a minute. But first, some news. So we have a newsletter called the Journal of Runic Studies, uh, which we put out every week, uh, mostly Sunday evening, unless I'm busy that weekend. Sometimes it's on the uh, Monday, um, where we link to the occasional post we um, write on the blog, uh, but mostly where we... Um, gather all of the news related to Glorantha, uh, more or less, uh, of the week. So you can uh, keep an eye on what's going on there. Um, so there will be a link in the show notes for those who don't know um, yet about it. You can also register by email or by RSS or whatever, or just go like a savage on the website every week. But anyway, so um, did anything worthwhile 
uh, or newsworthy or notable happened in what? the last month? Well, the, uh, we know uh, we know for a fact that the starter set for Rookfest is uh, no longer vaporware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There are actually people running around uh, who bought that uh, game at Gen Con. Well, maybe it's fake news for those. Yeah, well, uh, there were pictures. They're, they're actors. <laughs> I'll believe it when it's here delivered in my home, but yes, yeah. So, yes, uh, the starting uh, point for playing at Duranta might become a little bit easier for GMs who have never heard about it. True. Um, although, like, I was watching the, the Glass Cannon um playthrough of the one of the scenarios of the starter set i don't know if did, did you people uh watch it yeah i i watched yeah most i think i watched all of episode one and most of episode two of glass cannon yeah. so yeah that, that I, th- I thought it was interesting uh i think the cthulhu starter set's been brilliant yeah. i do think that RuneQuest is a very dense world glorantha is a very dense world to come into it's very hard if if you haven't got an experienced guide there to help you. So I think this will help. And I also think it's expensive to start, you know, to go out and buy two or three of the books and go, <laughs> yeah. there's an intro, off we go, When you, if you don't know it. It's fine if, you, if you've previously played a different version and you know you're going to love it, or if you really love Cthulhu and you think, look, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go in, KOism, know what they're doing. That's cool, but there are a lot of other players out there that don't know that, and I think this is a really good start set for that. And frankly, I'd buy it for the maps. Um, <laughs> Although, like you know, watching um, watching the GM from the Glass Cannon struggle with the rules, I'm still convinced that one of the biggest barriers to entry to Glorantha is not the amount of lore, but it's the RuneQuest system. I think it's it's still too complex. That's my that's my hot take. <laughs> I don't know. I, I find a lot of people that that play much more complicated systems. I don't think the rule set's all that complex, especially if you've played Cthulhu and you're used to that. Yeah. If you've not come from a D&D background, a lot of our There's players... Actually, players yeah. There is a very wide set of possible choices you can make within the rule set. So it starts off as a simple concept, the D100, yeah. but then you've got a plethora of choice. You've got to work out, is this a pow versus pow thing? Is this opposed? Is it unopposed? So it isn't the rolling itself. It's the decision-making on what the role's going to be well, about. It's also, it's also all the all the fiddly bits, right? It's got, it's got like, you know, two or three magic systems. It's got mm-hmm. the strike yeah, ranks, so the strike rank don't look like I'm anything. calling that the decision-making. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's just it's just basically you need a flow chart for that. <laughs> and in fact, what you need to do is throw it all out of the window, but people don't have the confidence for that. I didn't at first. I had to write yeah. something with Rajar because until you know enough to know what the game should feel like, you can't get rid of those bits. And then by that point, you don't need to get rid of those bits. Yeah, so I've seen, uh, I've seen on social media a few um uh, a few people um mention how you know they started playing RuneQuest and it didn't work. Like they couldn't figure out the rules. It was too complicated. And it's like, okay, I'm gonna try again. Like this this whole thing of like, you know, I really like Laurenta, so I'm gonna try again. I've seen that like a handful of times already on 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 Twitter or Facebook. I'd, I'd also argue um that we've tried a simpler system. There was Hero Wars or Hero Quest or whatever we want to call it. And didn't work. <laughs> it, it bombed, basically, sales-wise. Um, well, I mean, this is this is quite an extreme going. Like, and I, I would argue, Hero Wars and Hero Quest were 
probably a bit too uh, in advance for their time. You know, that's Robin Laws probably uh, a curse. Well, but here uh, was also some. Here was also also suffered from uh, being too close to Roomfest. Yeah, uh, while uh, in a system not uh, designed for that, so mm-hmm. it, it took HeroQuest two to get the, the streamlined system. Robin actually delivered. Yeah, it, it was tricky. I mean, my original RuneQuest players loathed it with a passion. Uh, one of them burnt the book in front of me. Um, so, <laughs> um, uh, but which was, you know, um, my name's in one of them. I, I backed it, but um, I think you burned <laughs> that one. I, mean, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go as far as you know, uh, HeroQuest or Quest Pro. I would just say that it just needs like a cleanup. Like, uh, for example, I was. I wasn't too big on the Call of Cthulhu rule set. Like I've, I've never been like a big fan of BRP, but I'm a big fan of Call of Cthulhu. And in fact, I was running Call of Cthulhu for many years with different systems. And uh, 7th edition Call of Cthulhu just cleaned it up really nicely. Like lots of unification, removing the fiddly bits, uh, the bits that stand out and all that. And and now I'm actually just playing vanilla Call of Cthulhu with the 7th edition rules. So I think, I mean... My humble opinion would be that RuneQuest would need kind of like a, a nice little cleanup, just like the seventh edition Call of Cthulhu. I'd quite like to see a baby steps intro where you start off like one particular thing. And I think the starter set does this relatively well from what I've seen. You start off with a lot of scaffolding and then you move up to, you know, your, your first fight is, you've seen it now. So your first fight is relatively low stakes and you probably don't want to be using magic you probably don't want to be using weapons and so it's 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 an attempt to start off simply but i think that you could have had a much nicer ramp that brings in one item along the way each time and makes it more complex I found playing in the the Witcher system, um, it had sort of training wheels to get us started. And that took a lot of the anxiety away from trying to learn a new system. Um, When we started playing that, I was kind of swamped with work stuff. And I really wasn't sure I wanted to try to learn a new system because I was still struggling with some aspects of the RuneQuest one. And it, it just, it was a very gentle sort of guide in. So thank you, Dom, for making that easier. But also, um, I just really liked the way this, that we got these sort of training wheels to help us learn yeah. along the way with, with less risk at first. I, I think that's a good, a good thing that you're getting people in. And there are some aspects of um, Cthulhu that I'd like to see brought into RuneQuest. I like the way they multiplied the stats up so you don't have to be doing the maths all the time and it's on the character sheet. That's great. I love that. I can see what they did. I can see why Jeff and Jason and co went and Greg and co went, you know what, we want to be backwards compatible with second edition so you can just use all of that stuff. I appreciate that. I think it's a good call. But I, I do think you know, some of the things in 7th edition again, I, and I do think a blending of that, and the training wheels yeah. idea where you introduce like levels of difficulty, not, <laughs> not D&D style levels of, you know, thing, it, but, you know, where you introduce the complexity into the game system slowly is a good idea, and I, I do like doing that. Um, and I think it does make it more accessible for players. There's no reason why a GM can't do that, but maybe, yeah, having that spelled out to do with RuneQuest because it is a crunchy system by today's standards. I love that crunch yeah. personally. Um, I, I wouldn't want to go and play like first, second edition D&D crunch. 
um, <laughs> except as a parody now and then, which is quite funny. Um, um, but that level of crunch and RuneQuest is is kind of satisfying. You know, nerding out over the numbers and doing a little bit of in-maxing is quite fun. But you've got to introduce people to it gradually. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of intros, there's a thing that I do that I think that a lot of people could do if they wanted to. I grab randoms from the internet and I introduce it to them. So I've run, I think, three sessions now of the Broken Tower where people were going, I wish I could get into this. And I'll go, when are you free? And that's kickstarted at least one group playing RuneQuest. Plus, it's given other people an understanding of the world. Um, plus, it's something to do in my copious free time. <laughs> so you um, mug people. Yeah, you, you, I, I mug people and force them to play in my game. That's how Tom got me into his game. So I, he got I was, me into his game as well. Yeah, actually, he 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 snuck you in without you knowing at first what you were doing. Two minutes with, it took me. <laughs> with me, it was um, I was crashing at one of the other players' houses for a night. And it happened to be game night and she was hemming and hawing about whether she should just skip the game that week or whatever. And Tom said, oh, no, it's easy. Let's just make her a character. And and it was for one night, one night. That was it, It, except it's been two years. And yeah. Okay. did um, did any of you three have any uh, cool thing you wanted to uh, mention or talk about in terms of what happened recently? Well, there is one massive cool thing, obviously. Erin, um, you're the one who hasn't profited from this, so let's have you say it. <laughs> we have we have the print version of Cups of Clear Wine out, and I am terribly excited. Oh, yes. I, I haven't got a copy yet. Um, it's, this is a problem with ordering things to come to Canada. It takes so much longer to get here. But print version of Cups of Clear Wine is out, and and you should buy it because it's awesome. Even Jeff says it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes so people can go and buy it. By the time this podcast comes out, there's also going to be another thing written by me, although it's not written by the Beer With Teeth crew. Occasionally, I write with someone else, quite often Austin Conrad. So I will spoiler this for you now. It's coming out on the 30th. It's The Whirling Moon. It's one of the Monster of the Month series. And we got carried away and it's just a complete drop-in adventure. So it's it's lower on art than the normal Beer With Teeth stuff. I wouldn't issue that for Beer With Teeth because it hasn't got a Chris cover on it. However, it is up to the usual standards that I would insist on, um, being a little martinet. And... It is probably going to be significantly underpriced because it's got to fit in with the monster of the month. So I'm saying that that's going to be awesome and you should get that too. So I didn't Austin say that he will actually make the monster of the month issues smaller going forward because he doesn't have enough time? I think that's why he got me to help with the writing here. I mean, I, I have the writing credit and he did the editing and he had a lot of very good suggestions which took my basic idea and made it really good um i wanted to mention one of the things that caught my eye in the past month was the um the preview of the battle rules that we got from jeff's game on youtube uh did any of you check those out yeah i, I actually saw it on this um i think a god learner podcast or something <laughs> um Something nice. it, it was great. There was an index. Like it was now. awesome. I didn't before, but I like you now. <laughs> you don't have to keep that up. Don't worry. 
Yeah, like, uh, um, I mean, I like most of what I uh, saw so far. And I like the idea that you use the, you know, your loyalty passions or uh, another passion to kind of as as fuel for getting your people to keep attacking and doing stuff. That's I like the idea that this passion can sort of decay. I'm a bit concerned that there are repeated battle roles, but yeah. that's something that actually you in a combat, you have repeated broadsword roles or repeated spear roles. Yeah. So is it really bad to have repeated battle roles? Well, to me, it was because in a in a um, like a skirmish combat, you generally only have one attack roll unless you attack twice because you split your attack or whatever, but you have one one attack roll for each attack. But here, uh, what kind of looked iffy to me was the multiple battle rolls within the same round for multiple things. Like, you know, there's a battle roll to see uh, how fast you charge or how you navigate. There's a battle roll for this. And like, it's it's it was the same skill for different things within the same round. And that seemed not, uh, I don't know, that, that brushed me the wrong way somehow. I, I mean, you know, but for me, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. We'll see. I mean, I, I was expecting something a bit more crunchy. I was expecting something a bit more like the old Pendragon-style things, but I hear Pendragon's actually going this way as well. Yeah. Um, but then I thought back to when I've actually run it. Um, I ran a big battle about three weeks before Nick Brooks' uh, The Duel of Dangerford came out. I actually ran the Battle of Queens, and then went, argh, I didn't have to write all that. Um, Nick's done it. Um, <laughs> but I ran it and thinking back on it that's pretty much how I ran it um, and I was thinking oh I wanted it more crunchy and all the rest of it but actually no that's that's actually how I ran it and I think it worked pretty well um, mine was much more on the fly and much less elegant but I think yeah we'll, we'll see how it plays and how it rolls and it's got the right level of crunch to me um, yeah so I think it probably has the right level of crunch although it may be the the, the wrong bits have been chosen, but I think that it will probably benefit from some narrative padding. And if you are not a GM who likes that sort of thing, then you could end up going, okay, make the next roll. And generally to be told to make two or three rolls right in a row throws me out of things. So there has to be some back and forth. You probably have the same problem with just normal combat, where if you have a non-narratively inclined GM, it's just like, okay, roll to attack. Yeah, yeah, you dealt 12 damage in the head. Okay, now roll to defend. Okay, now roll to attack. Like, it, it can also be dry in that way, right? Um, yeah, I, from what I can see, I think it could be... Um, you could ground yourself on that if you're not careful, but I would love to see how it actually plays out. Like, I'd likewise. And, and you can go the other way as well. You can get too narrative about things. Um, in, in my Witcher game, I had one of the players say, can we can we stop with the really gruesome crit descriptions <laughs> because I'm beginning to get ill? And it was like, oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, stop defending then. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough world. Hard luck. Mm. Yeah, no. Um, I one of the things I was thinking I've really been enjoying um, as I haven't been on social media as much lately, but in general, I really like all the stuff that Jeff's been sharing and the bits and pieces of the stuff around the the tribes and clans. It. I'm an I'm an archaeologist and and anthropologist, and it, it 
learning these kinds of stories and backgrounds really helps me with world building. And so having those bits and pieces has been a lot of fun. I look forward to his posts around those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah, like he's, uh, he's pretty open with sharing all the uh, all the work in progress stuff. That's uh, That's really nice. It is quite a difference, isn't it? I mean, because we get we get these um, developer design things from him and Jason, and we get a lot of this background. You get a lot of maps on social media. It's great. Whereas if you look at, I mean, the only other game I'm playing a lot of at the moment is The Witcher, and that's just closed shop until the Pontiff decide to, here's the new products coming out in a couple of weeks. And it's like, great, what is it? We're not oh, telling you. Right. <laughs> the announced release dates. <laughs> Yes. Well, no, they don't. You know, they, 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 or rather, they said, yeah, it's coming out next month. And then two years later, it does. Um, yes. So, oh, that's, the, that, that's why I mean, stuff. which I understand, you know, yeah. it's a tough world right now. And I get that. Um, but yeah, it, it, that is the, it, it is interesting seeing this um, window into it. Um, whereas even elsewhere, even in chaosm, you know, things like Rivers of London, we know is coming. And I've had a couple of chats with Lynn about it, um, but mm -hmm. there's still not a lot coming out yet, which yeah. is, you know, and we're almost due it to come out at some point fairly soon. So mm -hmm. it's interesting. <laughs> Okay, should we go into the main topic? Yeah, maybe we should. Yeah, our main topic uh, this time uh, originally was Dungeons and Encounters, but I think scenario design is the better term to use. And uh, we might pick up where D Diana left us a little while ago when she set a scenario up to her standards. She looks frozen. Yeah. Just like kind of frozen. <laughs> um I think I'm going to talk a little bit here while we wait for Diana. Yeah. Um, we've often, um, and we started, the first the first scenario that we ever wrote as Beer with Teeth was Crimson Petals, which is in Pegasus Plateau. Um, we didn't know we were Beer, we were beer with Teeth then. Um, we didn't know we were writing really, but Diana wanted to write a game and she had, and she wanted to GM a game, but she was very unsure about playing in RuneQuest with that level of crunch. Diana's come from a, a very yeah. system-like background. Um, and so she really wanted to write it. And so um, my normal GMing notes for an evening's play are like a side of A4 if I'm lucky. Um, <laughs> and, and that's it. Um, <laughs> I've just been going back and look to write up some of my notes from sessions I've written to write up the scenarios. And they, they are like a side at uh, most. I might drag one out in a minute. Um, but for this one, for Crimson Petals, we wrote it up in depth. And Diane had a very... Um, wanted it to be very exact, wanted it to be very well done and wanted it to be to cover all the options and the scaling to to be quite exacting, far more than I'd have written up for myself by any matter of means because we were going to co-GM it on our regular guest night and it was going to be our first time um, GMing RuneQuest. And so we wanted it to be, and Diana very much wanted it to be a, quite a high standard. And that... Um, demand, and I'm sure Aaron will back me up here, in saying Diana's very exacting and demanding on what she wants the standard to be, which I think makes for much better writing. I'll turn it over to Erin now for a second. Yeah. So I've got a, a couple pieces in terms of adventures that I've worked on with the lovely, fluffy Diana who has come back to us. Um, they're both 
works in progress. One's written and we're sort of waiting to see where we put it and, and what we do with it. And the other one is a, a piece that we are working on some more details. We need to do a play test or two on it and, and this kind of stuff. So it's uh, uh, hopefully soon to soon to come piece. But um, in both cases, like uh, I'm, as I've mentioned, I'm an academic. And so part of what happens with me in writing is that I go into these deep, deep rabbit holes where suddenly uh, Diana's like, wait a minute, how much time have you spent researching how glass making works in the Bronze Age or something like this? And she pulls me out of the rabbit holes to come back to think about things like plot hooks and um, social interactions of the NPCs and, and all of this kind of stuff. Because a part of the problem that I encounter beyond getting way too carried away in the research side is that I want to write stories. And so something I've been learning from Diana's influence is how to write game scenarios instead so that the GMs and the players can write their own stories. And that's, um, that's still an ongoing work in progress for me. I'd agree. And I, I've actually, whilst we've been talking, um, the original um, thing that became Crimson Petals, those are my notes. Yeah. <laughs> right there there's like six seven lines tops um and that was my notes for the entire scenario and then it turned into um crimson petals in in pegasus plus a. and that was down to, to diana wanting to be exacting and to have this and it made it to be honest when we went from turning that into something to submit to curzon which i'll let diana tell the story of because it was her idea um there wasn't a lot more work to do at that point. So I'll turn that over to the lovely fluffy Diana now. I am a lovely fluffy person. The way we wrote this one, we've got a few different ways that we write. Uh, the way we wrote this one was all up front. So with Beer With Teeth, either we'll be writing up something that we have already run, where we go, you know what, that stands really well on its own or we'll be setting out particularly to write something because we've got an idea. And for Crimson Petals, we had an idea and we looked at it and then we went and looked at the strengths and weaknesses of every single member of our party and we made sure there was something for each of them. So Dom's got probably the basic plot and what's going on, which normally we would just totally run from, but back then... I didn't have the confidence. In fact, it wasn't a lack of confidence. I knew I had a lack of knowledge. So back then, we made sure there was something for everyone. There was a spirit fight. There was talking. There was lots of stuff. And it was at least as important as the combat. And once we'd made sure that we had that and there were multiple paths in it, it was already nearly a written-up adventure. Um, I was dishonest. I didn't tell Rajar that I had this long-term plan to infiltrate myself into Chaosium. Um, he may have guessed. He knows me. But I, I wanted to have something that was worthy of a write-up because having put that much effort in, I felt that it was appropriate to go the whole hog. And I'd seen about the time that we'd finished the actual playing through what Chaosium's, yeah, uh, what's the word on their website? What, you know, what, what Chaosium guidelines. wanted. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, thank you, Rachel. I've seen Chaosium's submission guidelines and it was not very far away. And we were lucky, the timing was good. But 
because we'd done so much writing up beforehand from the the very basic ideas, we had something that was worth putting up, worth putting in. Cool. And so when you um, when you say that you were trying to um, uh, play to the strength of each of the uh, uh, player characters in your group, uh, how do you work that in your notes? ahead of time or do you just improvise it on the fly um or so it fully depends on how much work i want to put in beforehand for crimson petals we wrote it completely to make sure we had a lot of things covered and we didn't have every single option but we had you know, we didn't have the cthulhu way where you've got multiple ways clues that lead to a solution we had multiple situations which you could investigate and all the emotions and the hatreds and loves were written down so that the GM could use anything that the players did to then pass the solution on to them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you investigate in that area yeah. and there are a load of hormonal teams who want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter that so, you're investigating badly. Yeah. It, it sounds a bit to me like, um, so one, one of the games I play a lot also is Delta Green and one of the designers there, um, John Tynes, it sounds a bit similar to what he calls the investigative sandbox, where basically you know the, the events that happened previously you know the people who are involved and what they like, don't like, and what they want to do in the future. And then you just let this, basically you just let it loose with the players in it. And then because you know who are the NPCs and what they want and what, what their personality is, then you can, you can basically improvise all of the story based on what the players do. Is that kind of... Um, That's, that is very familiar, although I there doesn't sound like there's necessarily an explicit landing spot there. Yeah. So, you know, we had a solution or a set of solutions for Crimson Petals and everything was kind of brushed and groomed to kind of point that way. Sometimes I don't even do that, but quite a lot of the time it's it's a lot like that. You have all of the situations set up so that you can interact and get gently angled in to what's right. We'll, we'll also um, uh, sometimes build a vague timeline just to make sure that some things are happening to keep plot moving forward. Otherwise... Like that timeline of um, things that happened before the start of the adventure or, or a possible timeline of yes. what happens during the adventure? <laughs> Both. Both. So there'll be a what led up to this so that there's a kind of history of events that created the situation. Um, that way, it's not a situation that just appears out of nowhere. And then there will be a few things that might happen along the way in case the players need some kind of nudge. Um, but we try really hard to be gentle on the nudging side of things um, because, okay, well, yeah, sometimes spare is not very gentle in any way shape or form but the idea is to let the players play and explore and but at the same time there are some things that need to happen for the adventure to actually progress and so if need be those things can be brought into the story yeah and it's yeah. always useful when um when you know that you know after two days unless the players do something this bad guy is going to kill this person or is going to do the ritual or whatever like 
talking again in very Call of Cthulhu terms, but uh, there's rituals too in Gloretta. Uh, and so it's good to know so that if the players are stuck, then they hear about like, oh, there's like lightning at the top of the hill. Let's go see that. And so they have something to do again. Yeah, I feel whenever you up the tension, you should have an extra plot hook or a bit of explanation in there. Mm-hmm. So quite often I'll, ha- I'll start off with a steward and you negotiate with him. And then the king arrives. Mm-hmm. So if you have done well with the steward, you are pre-prepared. And if not, you get the new briefing when the king arrives and a whole new set of courtiers are also with him. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you're on the back foot, but you still get told the same things. So quite often, a reward for role-playing well is to be prepared when a big event happens. I tend to look at it a bit differently in that I tend to think about cool scenes that will happen that will be fun and entertaining for the players and hopefully for the GMs as well. And I tend to think about lots of different cool scenes uh, and events and, and stuff that could happen and that you know, it doesn't have to be action orientated. And then I think about those different ways that those could be strung together. And the players may sort of, I, then we're coming back to the sandbox, very much Delta Green in my background, Cthulhu as well, because I've played Cthulhu for many, many years. Um, is so I think about these cool scenes and then the players will thread their way and it's up to me to kind of, oh, they've gone off on that direction. Well, strangely enough, that leads to this scene. Um, but, you know, if they'd gone somewhere else, it would, strangely, they would have ended up at the same or one of a number of different scenes. And that does sometimes mean that cool scenes that I have planned then get used. Um, and that's okay. And that's cool, you know. But if I can work them in, I will. And... Um, and that's very much true. And, and I do have a tendency to GM to say, let's just use all of them. And let's just like turn all the cool seats in and see if I can get my players to get to, get to all of them. But it doesn't always happen. But if I can, that's cool. So do you throw any red herrings out or uh, maybe plot hooks to uh, the adventure next week or next month? Uh, I try and always do foreshadowing and throw things in. So um, there'll be little plot hooks and things like that um, or stuff that will foreshadow on the future. So um, I'm writing something at the moment where just the, the coins that the bad guys have in their pocket foreshadow political events because they're, they're, they're a new type of coin. And I'm not going to give anything away, but it's just like, okay, somebody's minting their own coins. What's going on? And that that shows that there's political ambitions. It's complete aside to the adventure, doesn't help solve it, doesn't do anything else with it. But in four or five adventures time, oh, that's what that was about. Um, and um, things like that. And I throw in these little events that are coming and it's, it's nice to get that foreshadowing in. Um you know, as I said, I'm running Children of Fear at the moment, and you get these dreams running all the way through it that um, foreshadow events, uh, which one of my players knows all too well, don't you, Aaron? But yeah, I like throwing in that stuff and background color and world color as well, because you can throw all these little elements in. Um, in, in one of my games, they had, the, the players had a huge confrontation with Tusk Riders, and then all the Tusk Riders disappeared off. I'm like, why is that going on? Well, they've been hired and they're, they're off in Tarsh now, creating chaos there, because we know that's happening in the timeline. And it's like, oh, you know, so that's an interesting, you know, that sort of stuff you can throw in. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I like I like doing that. Uh, and I don't, I don't, I stopped a long ago putting in the red herring because uh, players make enough red herrings as it is. Um, so, so that they, they you know, that, that's way enough. Uh, However, like Dom, how do you 
um, if I'm running something that's published, then I can throw in a lot of foreshadowing. If I'm running like the very rare times where I actually prepare stuff in advance, then I can also do a bit of foreshadowing. But a lot of the times um, I'm kind of like you where I just have, you know, half a page of vague notes and that's it. And as a result, I always kind of have um, like regrets not planning a bit more because as a result, I don't have enough material to do good foreshadowing. So how, how do you improvise foreshadowing or Varanis first I think I know you said Dom but Varanis has been shut up for a while <laughs> um, one of the things that I've noticed in the GMs that I've played with is y you mentioned those red herrings that the players create for themselves sometimes in the process the players are creating plot hooks that you can then grab and run with so part of it is kind of keeping your eyes open for the strange and odd rabbit holes the players throw themselves into and then turn those into plot hooks and adventures down the road right so it's just like it happened to be foreshadowing when really it wasn't on purpose yeah nice uh yeah diana so i do throw in a very few red herrings because you can't spoon feed and people don't like to feel they've been spoon fed but sometimes the pcs will go let's do that thing and as Rana says it's a great rabbit hole or it's a great plot hook and they should be correct um ask me sometime about how all of my pcs got together and murdered a golf professional but <laughs> get me drunk first <laughs> The fun thing about foreshadowing is when you have a lot of details, the players will often believe you foreshadowed, just have <laughs> themes that echo through things, and often they'll pick up on a theme, but they won't realise they have, or they'll be too lazy, and then you go, whoop, and then you can just show them the logs, you can look really clever. <laughs> but as far as red herrings go, it's all details, some they pick up on, some I pick up on, and I generally know what's going to be right, but recently I had in my notes, this king's ghost will definitely not visit Clearwine. And they went in and there was a special on Sing and they persuaded the king's ghost to visit Clearwine because that was really an awesome song. And then we got two episodes of them negotiating with really petty geek kings, the ghost and Laika, about who had precedence at the feast. And that... That was completely and utterly them picking it up and running with it because I went, yeah, that's that's better than them failing. The, the other thing that I use uh, when I'm going to do foreshadowing is um, Wave's copy of King of Sartar around. Uh, we've got well, an incredibly... That is the first edition. And, and worse, it's signed by Greg to me. Oh, um, my, yeah. Okay, um, um, so having lots of different foreshadowing, you can foreshadow stuff. And then if it doesn't happen, then it was obviously just a bad prophe prophecy or it just doesn't work out or there was a different version. You can throw in a bunch of random facts that can or may or may not be foreshadowing. And if you don't go that way, you don't use them and it wasn't. It's fine. You just throw in loads and then pick up the ones you want later on. And yeah. the players will we'll put that together. You didn't have to. So, um, and, and I think King of Sartre is a brilliant read for that just, just because it's so confusing and so, and so different threaded, you can make use of that. I just go all these different things yeah. and then you're fine. So you, you can do mad woman comes out and does a prophecy that the player is going to be, um, King of Sartre hereafter. 
And it never happened. Well, they were just a mad old woman. But if they did happen to be come and they got ambitions, then the player will pick up on it. So, you know, that works well. Yeah, prophecy is really awesome in a Glorantha sense because it's heroes fighting against each other. So there can be two incompatible truths and then they meet and one of them gets wiped out. And it wasn't that the other was false. It was that the other hero or the other story was not strong enough. Yeah, I, I think it's little details like that that Glorantha does so well. It's like, um, you know, when you tell the story of Grandfather the Monkey tell it, teaching magic to mortals, this is true. Yeah. It's also true that this is completely <laughs> untrue and something else. And that's fine. They're all, all these competing things are true. Yeah. And that yeah. just go with that. Yeah, 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 definitely. So, um, Diana, you talked about like themes um, and things like that in, in, your, um, uh, in your adventures. Uh, I wanted to know how you, um, like, do you pick some theme first and then uh, build an adventure around it? Or do you build an adventure and then infuse some? I, I um, almost yeah. never consciously pick a theme. Okay, yeah. So there is, there is the adventure and then there is the arc. And a single adventure is never going to be long enough to fit in a long-term theme. So I had a theme in mind for Crimson Petals, which was that hidden sins get bigger when they're on the ground, like the ghost. It's it's, because it's hidden, it gets worse. So that was Mm -hmm. a thing that could be quite short and run through it. Mm -hmm. But when I have a big long-term arc, that's different. So... When we're writing something like The Gifts of Prax, for example, Mm -hmm. we wrote Stone and Bone, and then we wrote The Gifts of Prax. And we can basically, in a published adventure, just about fit in all of the plot hooks that we want to have. We can't really fit in a theme unless we've designed the whole thing start to finish, and that's probably never going to happen for us. (laughs) So themes arise in my play because they have a lot of NPCs and the NPCs clash and they have loves and hatreds and also there are big magical things going on so there are magical themes going on Um, one person's arc was I am going to bring back the shield spell for Yelmalio like that got it started with a couple of mentions which I threw in way over there behind us and ended up with almost a pilgrimage to the Shaker Temple and a hero quest and actually ended up with this guy being broken in half by Zorak Zorani but hey these things happen you know details (laughs) and in in the same game I have got a theme where someone doesn't yet know Branis just put your fingers in your ears here someone doesn't yet know that they're a hero and that hasn't quite broken through to them yet. They've done a successful hero quest, but they haven't yet been informed of what this means. And so that gentle growing to power has been happening since again, about a year ago in character and all the politics around it have been the theme for this character. (laughs) Varanis is in my game Varanis is not to be spoiled when you said broken in two how lethal are your games Um, generally I don't tend to kill characters um, 
on a whim. Much. And I usually don't kill them unless the dice specifically say so. Like I will give them plenty of chances to back down. We've had what well, actually, there's this one player who's had several new characters, part of which is her style of not backing down, which I can understand. I mean, I'm, I'm a mouthy little bastard myself. And, yeah, you go, shut up, I should not say. So I can understand that you might have that sort of player, that sort of character repeatedly, but mostly most people are on their first characters. Uh, I don't set out to make a lethal world, you can generally avoid combat, but you can't always avoid combat. One day, anyone could make an unlucky set of rolls. A fumble will kill you. Yeah. And how do you, um, like, are you the type of GM who does at least partially set up the NPCs so that, you know, when they go against that, whatever? Yeah, it those... depends on the importance of the NPC. Yeah. So usually I will have also uh, improvise the stats on the fly. Usually I will have a few numbers. I have an an understanding of how strong a load of mooks are, but I do not need to stat them up. They're going to have 60% to hit with their spear or their short sword. They're going to have a set number of hit points. They're not really interesting, but I try to be very truthful with my characters and my players when it comes to the big fights where those things are planned if you divine you might be able to work some things out Mm -hmm. and if they pants you it's because you didn't come well prepared Mm -hmm. and so how do you um i guess how do you pick the numbers that go on the on those big npcs uh stat blocks okay which npc do you want to go up against because i have lots and lots of people who might end up as enemies. And because I know the world pretty well, because I've built and lived in this world, you'll probably have an idea, and I'll certainly have an idea, of what kind of level they are. So if you take on a clan chief, we both know what level that is, and it actually varies from game to game that I play. But there'll be an understanding of how big an enemy is. And usually it's pitched to be within some percentage of what the PCs can do. Like if they've got a 50% skill compared to the PCs, that's a MOOC. If they've got 120, that's a big boss fight. But that totally varies according to the campaign. When we did Stone and Bone particularly, we had a little paragraph every single time to say how you've how you pick the number of enemies for a beginning set of players, for a beginning set of characters, but with better players, people who know Grantham more, and the nearly rune level stuff. And we try to follow through there and have different levels of write-up with our enemies. So the GM who picks up our work can just go, this is the thing, this is the level. Yeah. Because one one thing I find tricky to wrap my head around uh, and which is why I kind of um, I kind of mostly improvise the stats behind the scene and then later write them if I want need to publish something uh, which I guess is kind of like what Nick Brook does when he says he's running hero quest behind the screen is that there is you know the stats and the skills that's one thing but In RuneQuest, more than other systems, I find that everything else is actually even more important. Like, you know, which spells they have and how they use them, whether they have allied spirits and things like that that can do additional stuff because, 
it's not just the 120% in sword that does the job. It's the fact that they have two spirits casting protection and shield and whatnot. Uh, and that's making the, the whole difference. And I have trouble quantifying that and, and picking whether this or NPC or other NPC should have those and how to use them. So, so I yeah. generally think that it is okay to overpower your NPCs as long as the PCs that are going up against them have the chance to move away. Okay, yeah. So, you know, if you take on a sort of Hume Act, you know what you're getting. Why did you do that? That's idiotic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One uh, of the things I liked from um, RuneQuest 2, uh, RuneQuest 3, was one of the ways that they scaled the bad guys, this is something I try and do, is you didn't necessarily power them up or power them down mm -hmm. to deal with different levels of character. You played them smarter or dumber. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. for example, if you went into Rainbow Mounds and you're a bunch of newbies, then the Trollkin and the Newts and things played it pretty dumb. Uh, if you went in higher, then they would use every trick in the book and ambush you and use their spells to maximum effect. And they didn't necessarily get any more powerful, they just get smarter. And that's one of the things that I really liked about RuneQuest compared to D&D at the time, back in the 80s and 90s, in that the, the, the bad guys weren't just stupid mooks of endless orcs charging towards people are getting mown down. They were people and they played it smart. And the advice to the GM was, if your party are really switched on and you want to give them a challenge, then think hard about how they use those spells, how they use that magic, how they use the environment. And um, I am currently writing something that does that in a rather nasty way that I think both my players here experience. And in fact, Veronis had a character die to one of the, to the encounter that I'm currently writing up. They, they did get resurrected. Oh, nice. <laughs> And of course, that's the other way that we deal with mm -hmm. characters dying, of course, is that resurrection's out there. Yeah. And players have access to it. NPCs have access to it. You have your ransom stashed. I think the first thing my Stormball did, Stormball did was stash his ransom in the temple at Boldholm. <laughs> so he could yeah. go, my ransom is. Yeah. <laughs> Please resurrect me. <laughs> and so do you have, so, um, do you have uh, tips for people about how to... Play because RuneQuest is a crunchy system and complicated. Like, do you have easy tips for how to play clever NPCs that are going to cause trouble? This is a really awkward one because basically the answer is practice the hell out of it. You'll get better. Okay. Yeah. Um, but also, I do. I write these stories in my head, and like I write down when you're boasting about it afterwards. What is it you want to say? What did the PCs do that was clever? And, and so I, I do kind of wargame some of these things, but because I'm the one that gets to write the draw the maps and write the whole stat block and write all of the tactics down, it's kind of a bit cheaty. So the answer is basically you're already cheating. <laughs> you're getting to play the entire world. So designing with beer with teeth work in general when i'm writing stuff which i often do with chris i design the maps and the people and the encounters all at the same time so that i know what ground you need to have there to take advantage of i like to start with the people um i love the creating npcs and so one of the things like, we, we did um, both in uh, Dregs and Cups of Clearwine, we, we really created communities. 
And a big part of picking the numbers was for me, first of all, really focusing on runes and passions and relationships, how everybody's interconnected to each other. Because then when when the PCs blunder into that area, um, they're going to trigger certain kinds of responses depending on how they interact with people because these people are a, a predefined community. They have relationships with each other, good and bad. And um, one of the things that Diana has worked on with us around that is that we don't need to supply all the numbers for all the characters, but picking out what are the things that are most important for these P NPCs and then um, you can kind of hand wave the rest. So if a player interacts with an NPC in a way you didn't expect and suddenly the NPC is going to need to have um, dodge skills or something like this, then then those kinds of things can be hand waved and, and estimated. But the ones that are kind of core to who they are as a person, those are what we often um, predefine in, in terms of creating the NPCs. Um, yeah, so that's an important part to me is, is starting with the NPCs and figuring out how they connect to each other. So how, how much does the setting play in? Like, like, for example, if you have clear one, which is a, a, a used to be a cursed second age uh, site, how much of the second age stuff still interacts with your players? How much archaeology do you do there? I... I love the archaeology side of it. Um, we haven't dug into, no pun intended, uh, as much of that as intended with Clearwine yet. Uh, there's bits and pieces of it. So in Cups of Clearwine, we have this uh, tree that goes back to a much earlier period and the Sartar's walls being built and all of this kind of stuff. Um, there's, I, I'm working on another project right now that I have to be a little bit secretive about, but the thing I'm super excited about that particular project is that I get to really play with some archaeology. It's going to have a lot of tombs and mausoleums and sarcophagi and, and all of that fun kind of stuff that I like. And so I'm, I am looking forward to, to using the archaeology to influence that particular setting. In um, both Dregs and Cups, the, in Dregs, you had a direct link to the Blue Mounds. And then in Cups, I, as an editor, I, I may not have mentioned this to you guys, but I, as an editor, made a conscious decision to have one old thing that you know, kind of we enforced in the area. And I looked at that and I thought about it and I thought that's a really good idea to do in the next things as well, because everything is built on the ruins of something else. So there are lots and lots of plot hooks for that tree. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to do old things, but we don't always want it to be the same kind of old thing. So we're going to have to be careful. Maybe next time it'll be an ancient whiter or it will be some secret hidden treasure trove. We don't quite know yet, but I'm hoping that we'll be able to fit in something old every time. And pot shards and middens. Yeah. Um, and so when, actually, when you um, design a place like um, like Dregs or Cups, where it's like one quarter uh, of um, uh, like a neighborhood or, or even if it was a village or whatever, do you have like a methodology for all of the different people and their relationships? Or do you just like throw a bunch of ideas at the wall, see what sticks? And then figure out what, like, you know, you wanted the troll king in there. So then you put it and then you think about, like, 
what people would think about this Trollkin and why he's there. Like, which way do you go about things? Okay. Um, well, we, we started the same way for both Drags and Cups, actually. Um, and the process was that we looked at the existing map um, for Clearwine, because we wanted to base it off the thing. So we looked at the existing map, and then like we the argued about... The Game Master screen? Uh, yes. Yeah. We looked at that, and, and then we argued about which area we were going to be in, uh, sometime for quite a while. Um, and then eventually we came to an, uh, an area we picked, and then I drew a terrible map of the area, which we've been posting on the Beauty Wiki. And then I pulled out my old copy of Request Cities, um, and made some wow, rolls. That's, that's vintage. That's vintage. <laughs> I, I've got all of the seeds for request cities, all of that. I pulled out my own copy, made a few rolls. Then we stared at them and went, that doesn't work because that's medieval. And changed the ones that don't work um, with the help of Aaron and Chris and Dan. And, that. and then we start working about, well, what are the personalities, the people, the NPCs that live in the, that, that are these professionals, these things. And that's how we get the map, the locations. And then we generally parcel out the locations of the people to different writers within Beer of Teeth. And then we start building the characters and networks. And I'll turn you over to Diane. I think that Dom has serialised it a bit much there because we actually, while we're doing that part, we also do things in parallel. So with Dregs, it was very clear from the start that there would be two rival families. Like right from the beginning, before we even really knew where they were, we wanted there to be tension in the neighbourhood. And so we did bring that forward as well with cups. We were looking for ways to create tension. And through both of them, we looked at them, looked at the whole thing every now and then. We went, is there enough tension? And quite clearly in dregs, there was, because Mama Volena versus the people across on the other side of the road that's a plot straight out from EastEnders. Like every soap opera set in a neighbourhood has that thing, two families that hate each other. But in Cups, we didn't actually have that. So we then added that in afterwards. Well, after we'd half-defined some of the people so that we had reasons for people to dislike each other. And we make sure that everyone has a relationships and stats block, a relationships part of their stats block at the end. But that generally comes from quite early on because all the way through, we are trying to work out how to keep the people in tension so that it feels realistic and so that if you're friends with someone, you might be enemies with someone else. Sadly, I think I just um, recycled it, but I actually drew a relationship map for cups to make sure that everybody had connections. And I was looking at what the positive connections are and the negative ones, who's allied with whom and who's in had a longstanding argument and this kind of stuff to plot it all out. Um, part of what happens too is as we, we talk about the kind of general neighborhood we want to create and then people sometimes lay stake. I want to do this NPC or this family. Um, and so the group of us will kind of divvy it up in terms of what we're interested in. And then as we're working on those, there'll be those conversations of, well, I'm working on this glassmaker and her um, dead husband was, was that guy's son. So Rajar, what does your NPC think about my glassmaker and her child? And so we'll end up 
teasing out the relationships between us as as well with that. And I do have to admit, because I love the NPC stuff so much, I might already have a few NPCs in mind for the next Clearwind book that we want to do. And I might already have started the research for some of the technologies that'll come up in the next one, because I got to know what the Bronze Age technology is like that goes with that neighborhood. And, and sadly, I do that sort of thing as well. I'm not anywhere near on Erin's level. It's not my job or anything. But yeah, I, I spent far too much time reading about charcoal burning in ancient Greece <laughs> and, and forestry techniques <laughs> and things like that. That was not too much time. That was a perfect amount of time. <laughs> yeah. The other yeah. thing that we do as part of that is we do a bit of checking our own um, bias and having a look and going, are we writing too many mom, dad, kids, nuclear families living in a single house? This is this is ancient times. It's not. It's not suburban UK, US, Canada, whatever. Are we writing too modern? Have we made too many assumptions? Have we got too many families of the wrong type? Have we got, you know, all that sort of thing? And we'll go and look at it. And one of the things we did in um, in Cups was... Uh, we've got too many just like couples living together. What, what, where are the granny, grandkids, multiple generations living in one big house, which is something Jeff had been talking about. And we were on the same path going, uh, just a minute. We got, so some of the big households that we wrote with multiple generations were that, but because we go, no, we're writing this to, to modern European, America, North American centric. <laughs> we've got to do something about that and make it, you know, do that. And uh, Chris is very good at doing that. I know she's not here tonight because Chris doesn't like talking on camera, but um, Chris <laughs> is very good at picking those those sort of things up and talking about them, which is good. Um, and, and often Chris is really good at sort of, you'll describe a character and then this artwork will appear, sometimes in like a constant stream of like five or six words. Yeah, like five or six in a day. It's like, oh, that's what they look like. Oh, and that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. What? And that's just an amazing experience to go through. Um, I've known Chris a very long time. Um, and yeah, it's, a, it's amazing doing that. Um, well, speaking of research on um, um, uh, in the Bronze Age, do you have any you know, cool sources uh, that you want to share? And especially, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, and especially uh, figuring out what to pick and what to ignore, because like, you know, Glorantha is not exactly historical Bronze Age. There's a lot of leeway there. So. Rather than give you particular sources to look at, because I mean, I use things like archaeological reports, uh, which are not generally accessible to a lot of people. But uh, the thing that I would point out that I really love about working in this kind of way, although I'm still learning how to do it, A, is I don't have to cite my sources. <laughs> and and the thing about archaeology is that, uh, you know, we, we sometimes joke about archaeology being this really fiendish puzzle where you don't have the cover of the puzzle box, so you don't know what the big picture looks like, and you only have a small fraction of the pieces and you're trying to piece the things together. With this, I just get to make stuff up to fill in the <laughs> gaps in the archaeology. So I'll look at things like a cemetery site or I'll look at a settlement site and and I'll see what's there. And then I can can just make the rest up to go along with that. So that's a really a, a really fun thing for me as an academic to be able to just say, okay, yeah, sure, this, the sources say this, 
but I can just do this bit. Yeah. Um, it's kind of funny. I do have to refrain from citing my sources in the pieces that I write and, and creating bibliographies and, and this kind of stuff, because occasionally I um I, I do produce a bibliography. I'm I'm working on a thing, as I mentioned right now, and I might have a running bibliography at the end of it, just in case I get I need to back something up at some point along the way. And and as um yes, it is there's a mention in our chat that's going on here about the motel of mysteries kind of vibe. And that's exactly what I'm doing. Uh, Google motel of mysteries. If you're not familiar with it, because it it's a riot. Um, oh, yeah. There we go. Yeah. Excellent. There we go. And, and the thing that also kind of blows my way as an academic is I'm used to writing stuff and publishing stuff that it's just part of the job. And I do the thing and I get to write it down on my CV and that's it. I get paid to write stuff for Glorantha. I get money for the words that I put down on paper and the stuff that comes out of my head. And that is really kind of mind blowing. Um, I'm, I'm loving that aspect of this as well. It's a neat change especially because i do get to just make stuff up and then people pay me money to do it <laughs> we came very close we came very close to putting a reading list at the end of dregs of clear, uh, clear wine it just didn't make the page count but there there were a number of uh, yeah i'm afraid i'm i'm not i'm not i was going to say bad bad's the wrong word i'm not um as full-on as erin in doing my research but yeah there were archaeological papers and Weirdly, out of all the people I've gamed with over the years, three of them have been professional archaeologists. <laughs> so, um, and you've got no idea how hard it is GMing things like Children of Fear, which is about, which to start off with is about archaeology. When you've got a professional archaeologist in the party, in fact, of the people in the party, right, uh, in Cthulhu at the moment, I've got an archaeologist played by an archaeologist. I've got a doctor played by a doctor. And I've got an artist played by an artist. And um, uh, and the last player left in the game is my wife, who knows me backwards forwards. So I really have to be on my game for, um, for stuff. Erin's got some Right. This is an example of the kind of book I like to use. It's called Ritual and Early Bronze Age Grave Goods. Mm -hmm. uh, Woodward and Hunter. Oh, it's John Hunter. I like him. Uh, and it is, it's only 600 pages oh, um, of archaeological material. So yeah, I did, this is my inspiration, but not generally accessible to others. And I do have <laughs> four bookshelves worth of archaeological material just to the left of me and that's not including the massive amounts of stuff in my office so <laughs> yeah I, I like the archaeology side of this <laughs> nice i come in right at the end of this process so i actually did do the writing for the charcoal burner because Rajar came up with this thing and was like, this is how charcoal burning works. I went, I want to do that. But I don't tend to do the research. I tend to brain pick Varanis and Rajar and Chris and find out what it is that, that is really cool for me and exciting for me and then make that into people. Uh, I'm actually a really bad researcher. I'm technically a research assistant. <laughs> However... That's not actually really what I do. I'm an engineer, so I'm not into finding out things that have happened in the past. I'm here to find particular solutions. And for me, a solution is we'll glue it together. <laughs> 
Um, Which is amazingly what the editing is like. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> uh, the other bit that comes in is, um, as we've been saying, uh, Chris, Diana, Erin uh, are all relatively new to Grover, although you've been in, living in that world for some time now, whereas I'm the old Grovenard who's been here a long time, and my bookshelves over there have most of what's been published in Glorantha. Um, I did sell some of my second edition stuff to fund stuff when I uh, particularly bought, but I have most of the books on the shelves and most of the fanzines and most of the publications that came out over it. So I've got this background of it. I've been playing it a long time. It doesn't mean we always use all of it, uh, especially in the new world where really you're talking about the source book, the guides, which do sit on my shelves and the new timeline. So it's knowing, you know, not everything else is necessarily what you need to use, but knowing it's there. So you're not getting, I mean, sometimes it's just what not to use, but also what to use. And also to know if you've come up with an idea that is very, very similar to something that's been done before, that can go over very badly if, you know, you're not, if you, if you just do that by accident. And that's happened a few times. You know, um, somebody's come up with a plot, plot thread and gone, let's write this adventure. And I go, yeah, that's that's kind of been done already. Um, we don't want to to do that exactly because we're, we're really close to something else um, that's already been published. And that's that's not, not a great idea. And so that that's where I come in a bit. Um, although these guys have absorbed a huge amount. And with the new stuff, it's that's becoming less important as time goes on. Yeah, Rachel had the ability, especially early on, to dictate what the Glorantha tone would be in a way that he could put over to us really well. And we have picked that up a lot more now, but he was a very good tutor for how the feeling of Glorantha was. So even if he doesn't know if a thing's happened, he'll be able to tell you if it's, if it's a Glorantha-y thing. And now we can all do that a lot more, but especially at the beginning, it's like, would this happen? And he still goes, oh, yeah, in that year. <laughs> and, and I pull something off my show. The first time um, that the players were my player group, and it was one we were running for Tomswell, they were exploring a cave matrix for an adventure that has yet to be published, but it's out there. And I just casually dropped in that the walls were um, had bronze veins because they were the bones of a god. And all the players sort of went, what? Because <laughs> um, some of them were quite new. Oh, yeah, that's where bronze comes from. It's not that it's, it's Well, it can be. But, you know, it's... Yeah, you're walking through the body of a dead god and everybody went, oh. <laughs> those are the ribs and those are the scales. Yeah. And so do you, do you have a, a, a little bit of wisdom for us for what feels and doesn't feel Clorentine, like a, a criteria? I think for me, the big the big thing is it's all about magic, myth, and belief, and that science doesn't exist, and you're swimming on this ocean of myth and belief. And as we said earlier, multiple things can be true at once, even if they're contradictory, and that's absolutely fine. Um, and it's not until they're tested against each other that we find out if there is a universal truth, and there may not be. And that's fine and so just just run with it and if you and the other and of course the other big thing i'd say that this is an aid to in Glorantha is it doesn't matter as a gm if you're just winging it because your reality is true yeah and it doesn't matter what your players think they know <laughs> or don't know your reality and your Glorantha is true so that's fine your Glorantha should vary it must vary and that's fine I was. I wanted to add to that that I, I think it's 
one of the things that's most inviting for me about Glorantha is the notion that Glorantha will vary. Um, and also, you know, you run the risk whenever you've got a system as uh, like a, a lore as well developed and as historical and by historical, I mean, in terms of um, the the creation by Greg and, and everything that's kind of come from that original inception of Glorantha through to the present day, you run the risk of, of it stagnating, of it being this is the way that the history is, this is the way that culture is. And the thing that I love about working with people like Jeff and Jason uh, is that they they aren't wanting it to stagnate, right? Because building on Greg's vision, this is a world that is changing. I mean, Greg modeled that. His his ideas seem to change over time. And he what I've been told is that he he would not have been happy with it getting locked in stone and saying, This is this is it now. It can never change. It's and so this is a thing that I think is really powerful about Glorantha is that it has this room to evolve. Um and and I think that's super important, especially as people write for it, that, yes, you want to build on the existing body of work, but you don't necessarily have to be locked into that body of work. And you don't necessarily have to be afraid of making mistakes in producing stuff because Glorantha does vary. Um, so we try to respect the 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 lore as described by Chaosium's books, but we aren't necessarily going to be completely restricted by that. And I think that's an important acknowledgement to make too. I think that the alternate truths and the, the alternate grants is very important. The other thing that I think is really Glorantha-ish is the sense of community. I, I can't think of any other game that has the concept of a whiter or not in this way. A, a community is a living thing, and you have so many communities. So for a Glorantry feel, you need to have passions and communities. And actually, I'm going to jump in again. Oh, my God, I'm the talky one for a moment. Uh, I've... I long, long, long time ago, I played D&D and it was that, you know, weird party that seems to come out of nowhere. Everybody met up in the tavern where you got hired and there's no connection to anybody. Our Glorantha, all of the games, because I, I have characters in multiple Glorantha um, games and, and in all of them, there are strong relationships between um, the PCs and where those relationships are lacking. Sometimes it's actually hard to to play as a group because you're sometimes wondering, well, why are we doing this thing if it's not relevant to my character um, in a, in the connections that we do have? Well, we're doing this because this matters to my um, family, whether that's my birth family or my adoptive family or whatever, this is, matters to my clan. This matters to my, my dear friends. It's a strong bond that holds it together and that i think makes for really powerful play um and, and communities that are i mean it, it's weird they've kind of spilled on into my real life to some extent and um it's made up for a much better gaming experience as well and yeah i guess th this is why like when you write those small scenarios like stone and bone you always have this thing where you can uh, well, I guess most scenarios have that, the, the bit where you can say, um, you can plug in that scenario if you have a PC that is living here or that has a contact with this community. Uh, and, and that's how you can plug that scenario in your campaign. 
with Stone and Bone and the Praxian things particularly, we went out of our way to have runes as well. So you could have like a harmony rune and then you could have a community that could also bring you in. So you might be a member of the Bisons or you might be an Assyrian and you're passing by and they need this for a particular reason. So it's, the plot hooks are a lot about relationships. I've seen people use runes and the relationship between the runes, you know, like, you know, water beats sky beats whatever, like I don't remember the, the wheel and the diagrams, but anyway, um, using that as a way to help design parts of the scenario where you have to, to, to figure out who might be affecting another part. Like, you know, if you find a ruin and it's a ruin that uh, belongs to, I don't know, some Yelmalio temple, then you know what would be the rune affiliations of the people who destroyed the temple and that informs the, 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 the history of that site and things like that. Are you also using that to kind of give this mythical resonance um, or... Um... I don't think so. I think we're mostly using our knowledge of history as it would have been or might have been. And again, this is kind of a map that we get to choose and draw. So I think we mostly write those things according to what we need, but we do make sure that it's going to make sense. So it's probably not going to be a Yelmic temple that destroys the Yelmalian one. And if it is, you really want to find out why. So I, I think that that particular cycle isn't one we really look at hard. We do use the runes as hooks for pulling um, PCs in, or they may influence um what happens so if you need to if you need to give the jam a way to pick a target you might say it's going to be the person with the highest of this rune in the party or something like that so we'll we'll use runes that way um but we haven't really played around with them as part of the the history construction side of things um the only way that we kind of done that and i it's not a contradiction to what aaron said but um we often think about the personalities and characters and relationships, as we've said, but those will be powered by the runes and that may then lead to the motivations. So, for example, you know, if you've got um, a, a Lanka my sage who's got a particularly incredible thirst for knowledge and power uh, and they go off and then that may lead them to go and do other things. And you think, well, their runes made them do that and what happens if this gets extreme, you know, and that, that can lead to a scenario. And then we tend to think about the scenes that we want to run. And that's going to be cool, and and then go from there. I was going to say, Diana um, sometimes uses the runes as a kind of horoscope sort of thing, where you know, I we she has this tool that she's created that can do runes quickly for NPCs and stuff. And I, I had her do runes at one point for one of my horses. And, um, oh boy, uh, I, yeah, I have three horses now. I think all three with death and darkness runes and and they're um they're monsters uh so wait, the, the the horses have rune stats yeah just just, just the runes 
We don't give them runes as in a runic affinity, but we give them personalities based on the runes. So, you know, you're not going to have a horse that is casting death magic, but you will have a horse that doesn't like other horses and that kicks a lot because it's high in death and disorder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Leads to occasional hilarity. Especially combined with my poor riding skill. Uh, on one occasion, um, Varanis fumbled riding three times in a single session. Um um, which which has caused interest. And at one point, we were discussing sneaking one of our horses into the lunar encampment, uh, just leaving it there, because death and destruction would almost certainly follow. Um, That's a, a new version of the, the Trojan horse. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, just give them the horse, give them fish. Everybody's like, no, that'd be evil. <laughs> and, and so we have... Like, I mean, the horses are just, they're just horses. They they become sometimes a bit of comic relief. They can create tensions and that kind of stuff. Um, sometimes they just give me a thing to roll on periodically. We also do have um, in, in our scenario creations, we will create animals as part of the, the world. So it's not unusual for there to be things like, well, it, it, most recently in cups, there is a flock of geese and the geese have a certain amount of personality already kind of created in there and people who are responsible for them and and they they can certainly do things um and it's partly because this is a world that's full of animals right i mean bronze age you you are living with your animals they are everywhere uh it's partly because it's it's fun it adds a a kind of another element to it and and the animals have relationships with people whether that's because they're those people's food animals or whether it's because they're um, you know a, a hunting animal or a mount or whatever so the things that happen to those animals may also then affect the people around them so an, animals definitely play part of our world creation quite a bit okay Yep. We gave cracks of brunic theme because when we're doing stone and bone there's a part where you travel and there's a little tiny test of each rune to give a conception of Prax as a whole. It's like there's a lack of water, there's a lot of sun. And we went for a lot of runic possibilities with the bestiary at the back of Gifts of Prax so that we've actually put the runic associations down there. And in my head, in my Glorantha, it's more the case that in Prax, the runes are kind of raw and in the open much more than in Sata because it's a desert there and all the softness has been rubbed away. So when you encounter something in Prax, it's likely to be more extreme and it's likely to be very harsh and you're going to see the rune more in its raw form. And I think that Sartre is a bit softer and more civilised and you might see a lot more air, but you're not going to see so much air that's just trying to kill you. Um, so is there any other topic you wanted to bring up? There is actually one more thing. It harks back a little to the concept of the multiple truths and the grant varying. I find a really, really good way of making any campaign fresh, which counts across the board, not just for Grantha, is you state up front what one big change is going to be. So for Grantha, for example, you could say that Blogargraf's dead. At which point, everyone still knows a big chunk of the setting, but the whole thing that is coming up, it suddenly becomes completely open again. So if you're a jaded personality, I would 
settle down with your GM and work out one big change you can make for any campaign across any setting anywhere. And that can always make it fresh for you. I do think that's a useful thing to do. And uh, one of the things that I'm enjoying running at the moment, which has nothing to do with Glorantha, well, vaguely, um, is is Children of Fear, where I haven't defined whether it's a Mythos campaign or not in my head. I do not know as the GM. So it might be um, a Cthulhu Mythos thing at the end of it or it might not be and therefore the players can't second guess and, and yeah 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 um uh, and so i've got in the group um one very experienced call cthulhu player but he can't second guess what might be about to happen next he can't say oh it's going to be this because it might be nothing to do with cthulhu cthulhu may not exist in this universe so therefore he cannot second guess it um it so that sort of does it. And I, I may know, uh, I may have written it down in a book somewhere, but I'm certainly not, but I'm not tying myself down to that and I may change my mind. And so by having these future events in Glorantha, you can tie it back, but yeah, these, these big events that may happen, you know, Kalia may do the Dragon Rise, Argraf may become king of this, but they may not, and it may not become true. And by freeing yourself from that, you, you stop players from knowing the future history and acting accordingly. There's lots of people who don't like Metaplot, but to me, Metaplot is just a guideline so that you know what happens if nobody messes up with it, but it's meant to be diverged because the players are going to mess with it. And that's where you can play with the alternate histories. And I like alternate histories. It's really interesting having Caldir alive in our timeline in our game yeah. because things are getting very strained politically with these <laughs> I bet. these competing uh rulers right um who who are your characters supporting uh, uh <laughs> this is a difficult question okay. <laughs> that might them. be a question for a whole other podcast <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> to get, to Let give me just you get one... advice <laughs> yeah um my my character, who's a Stormball, is loyal to Argraf as White Bull. Um, another person is loyal to Kalia as as theirs. Another is uh, loyal to Lechia, and one of us is loyal to all three, which is causing a problem, <laughs> isn't I'm, it? Yeah, I'm a I'm a little Colimar with huge loyalty Colimar, huge loyalty to Kalia, and a loyalty to Argraf, and I'm not even the most messed up by this. <laughs> yeah. I'm oh, descended awesome. from Sartar. Um, what? Which I didn't know. I made the mistake of not telling my or of telling my GM to surprise me with something, and he sprung that on me uh, fair oh ways God. into the game. Are you going to run for the throne? <laughs> no, people what? keep trying to get me to do it. <laughs> yeah, you should do it. You should become the Argraph. <laughs> we'll let Dormal in. Okay, here. so we found the Yurmal. We found the Yurmalites. <laughs> because there was definitely there's definitely one moment where we've got. Um, you know, Kalia at one side, Lekia at another, Argraf another, and, and our descendant of Sartar here going, ah, and people say, you should run for, for King or Queen. And my Stormball leaning on his axe and going, if you do, that's going to make chaos. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I really don't want to have to cut your head off. Um, oh, nice. Uh, um, but we didn't, you know, it, it, it hasn't resolved, but it's causing a huge amount of tension again. And that's really interesting and really fun. Um, I was going to say, and we haven't even mentioned the Feathered Horse Queen yet, but but she's playing a role in all of this as well. So it's, Yes, she's it's in there as well. 
and the feathered horse uh, and of course the luminous stallion king who um i don't know if this will translate but i'm i i created him in the game very much as a version of flash art um so he's all bling and pearly you know he'll show up in a bead of a su sunshine and you know, his teeth will gleam and his official portrait artist will run out and do a portrait of him <laughs> and then he'll move on to the next scene and the players universally loathe him but he's always there and he's always doing what appears to be the right thing or at least that's the way his scouts tell it afterwards <laughs> nice Oh, well, um, we are running out of time. So where can people buy your stuff, find you um, and other things you want to plug? Um, they can definitely buy our stuff on the Johnstown Compendium. And they can also buy our stuff occasionally from Chaosium, currently only in the Pegasus Plateau, but we do continually send Jason more things. Um, he hasn't yet begged us to stop. <laughs> we have got lots and lots of links, which I'm sure we'll be supplying to you. Awesome, yeah. When you look us up, if you like our work, we're not just beer with teeth. We occasionally share things, so Chris especially is a jobbing artist, and look up our names as well if you're on the Johnstown Compendium. Awesome. Well, we'll put a whole bunch of uh, links in the show notes and hopefully uh, you will be able to get $22 out of that or something. <laughs> I have a spreadsheet. <laughs> I have a very big spreadsheet now. Oh, you're the accountant also? Mm, I, I believe I may have mentioned I sometimes get obsessive over things. She likes data. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I have spreadsheets too, so I, I empathize. <laughs> anyway, well, thanks a lot, Beer With Teeth, for uh, coming on, the, uh, on with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The God Learners. Our website is godlearners.com, where you can find episodes, newsletters, and articles about Glorantha. Reach us via email at collective at godlearners.com or via Twitter or Facebook at The God Learners for any questions or feedback. We are The God Learners. Question everything to the void and beyond. I can take the human mask off now, right? They're still recording. Shit. Sure. <laughs>